Today's reading is on page 1196, 1196 of the Bibles in front of you. Page 1196, 2 Timothy, chapter 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth. Men of deprived minds, who as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of God. Well, it's 63 AD. Paul is in prison in Rome. He's preoccupied with the future of the Christian gospel. His mind dwells, though, on the evil times which are all around him. He thinks about the next generation of Christian leaders like Timothy and how they're going to cope when the opposition is so strong. And so he begins his letter with a vivid sketch of the contemporary scene. And then against that background, he charges Timothy to continue faithful to what he has already learned. Well, let us pray and ask God to help us understand this chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. 
Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule and your Holy Spirit our teacher and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I often hear from some of the older members of uh, the congregation who, are, who express their concern for what the world is coming to and their genuine fear for what it's going to be like in the future for their grandchildren and great-grandchildren, for their nieces and nephews and great-nieces and great-nephews, and especially if they are committed Christians. Life might not be, we might be heading for a period of time when it's not quite so easy to be a Christian. And Paul, although he was not married and so didn't have any biological descendants, he nonetheless had plenty of spiritual descendants, his spiritual children who he had introduced to the Christian faith and the salvation that Christ offers and which they'd embraced. And one such who was very precious to him, was Timothy. As I've said, it was 63 AD. Paul is in prison in Rome, awaiting trial, which could end, and in fact did end, in his execution. And he looks at the times, and he's concerned about the future of the Christian gospel. It must continue to be guarded and to be communicated, preserved, and promulgated. And he writes to Timothy, one of his closest special children, to do just that, to continue faithful to what he has learned. And the chapter begins, as we probably registered, very emphatically. It says, but mark this, or understand this, exclamation mark, underline, put in bold, or whatever we might do to kind of make it stand out emphatically. Now why does Paul write like that to Timothy, who is well aware of the stressful times that they're living through? It's not as if he was unaware of the strength of the opposition. He had seen in his hometown of Lystra, in sort of central Turkey today, the Apostle Paul, about 15 years before, beaten and dragged through the streets and left for dead in the gutter. He was aware that Paul was now in prison, facing the possibility of execution for no other reason than for being a Christian. Earlier in the letter, Paul had urged Timothy in chapter 1 not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to take his share of sufferings like a good soldier of Christ to endure with Christ if he is to reign with Christ, and that behind the godless chatter and stupid and senseless controversies of the false teachers lurk the devil himself. Now why does Paul stress that times are tough, even though Timothy knew they were? Well, surely it's because he wants to emphasise that the opposition to the truth is not a blip in the grand plan. Something that will pass in time, but rather it will be a permanent characteristic of what he calls these last days. Perhaps he fears that Timothy 
will be over-optimistic, hoping that if he just keeps his head down, lies low for a while, then the storm will pass. But Paul doesn't give him any such hope. I guess that we too should mark this. We should register it. We should record it in our memory banks of Christian understanding that if we stand firm for the truth of the gospel, we are likely to face some level of aggravation. Now, of course, I'm sure you're aware that when he talks about the last days, he's not simply talking about some period well into the distant future. We're aware that the last days covers the period from when the Lord Jesus first came to when he will come again at the end of time. Hebrews 1 verse 1 is but one example. We read that in the past God had spoken through his prophets, but in these last days he has spoken through his son. That, of course, was written in the first century AD. We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. So it's clear that Paul is not giving Timothy predictions about the future, but rather instructions about how to live in the present. Although things may go from bad to worse, verse 13, in the future, he's saying that they are bad now in 63 AD. And then Paul adds, there will be terrible times in the last days. See, what Timothy is to understand about the last days is not that they are uniformly and continually evil, but they will, con they, but they will include from time to time particularly perilous times, as the authorised version translates it, or with the NIV here, terrible times. That's a word that's used in classical Greek of the behaviour of dangerous wild animals and the raging of stormy seas. Painful and perilous, hard to endure and hard to cope with. And then Paul immediately goes on to tell us why this is the case. And he writes, for people will be. In other words, people are responsible for the evil in the world. So let's be clear. We're living in the last days. Such days include particularly terrible times, but not universally so, or continually so. And they will be down to the actions of bad people. And we're to be quite clear about it so we can be prepared for it, so we have an accurate take on the future, that we're realists, Christian realists. Now in the rest of this first paragraph, verses 2 to 9, Paul gives us the character traits of such evil people. There are 19 expressions in all. That would use up all our time if we were to go through them individually and minutely defining each term separately so that we had a really detailed analysis of these people's character. But might I just draw your attention to the first and the last phrases used. The first is that they are lovers of self. And the last is that they are not as they should be, lovers of God. 
In fact, four out of the 19 expressions are compounded with the word love, suggesting that what is fundamentally wrong with these people is that their love is misdirected. Instead of being first and foremost lovers of God, they are lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, verse 4. And so the remaining 15 expressions are basically describing the breakdown of people's relationships with each other in both the family and in the wider community. John Stott, in his commentary, makes a characteristically astute observation. God's order, as plainly declared in his moral law, is that we love him first, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, then our neighbour as ourselves, and then lastly, ourselves. He goes on, if, he, if we reverse the order of first and third, putting self first and God last, our neighbour in the middle is bound to suffer. And only the gospel offers a radical solution to this problem. For only the gospel promises a new birth or a new creation which involves being turned inside out from self to unself. In other words, we get reorientated in the way we both think and behave, which makes us fundamentally God-centred instead of self-centred. Now it might come as a shock to realise that the people that Paul has just described in verses, uh, with the whole passage kind of like two to, to nine, that uh, these people are religious people. Verse five, they're found in the church because sadly they have divorced religion from morality. And sadly, that has happened too many times in the history of the church. They have been separated rather than being united. They preserve the outward form of godliness, but were, we read, denying its power. Verse 5. They evidently attended Christian gatherings, they sang hymns, they've said amen to prayers, they gift-aided their money or whatever they did in those days, and they looked and sounded quite pious, but it was a form without power, an outward show without an inward reality, religion without morals, faith without works. Now true religion combines both form and power. It combines the inner reality with an outward expression. The two go together. And Paul adds, have nothing to do with them. Now he clearly can't mean have no contact with them because Jesus, after all, was the friend of sinners. How are we to evangelise anybody if we you know, just stay in a holy huddle, which would probably become corrupt anyway. What Paul means, I think, is that within this deceitfully corrupt church that was unfortunately the early church, it might have been all right in Acts chapter 2, but it certainly soon goes, starts going wrong. 
that he's saying that within this uh, dreadfully corrupt church, Timothy was to have nothing to do with what might be called religious sinners. That's people who profess faith while simultaneously persisting in a blatantly unchristian lifestyle. And such groups were aggressive campaigners, verses 6 to 9. You see, lobbyists and pressure groups are not just a phenomenon of the 21st century. They were both around and within the early church, aggressively promoting false teaching of one kind or another. And the verb here, to gain control of, was used when you capture prisoners of war. You take them under the command, from under the command of their leader to under the command of yours. And the women targeted as victims, Paul refers to by the word gynacaria, little women. It was a term of contempt for a category of women who were idle, silly, and weak category of women, not all women. They were weak in two ways. They were morally weak. They were loaded down, we read, with sins. And they were swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Their sins were both a burden to them and a tyrant to them. And these false teachers came along and played on those women's feelings of guilt and weakness. And secondly, they were intellectually weak. They were the kind of women who were, we read, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. They were commitment phobes, we might say. They were incapable of reaching any settled convictions and always on the lookout for the latest and better brighter, novel theology that might be the answer to everything. And they were like a little rudderless boat at the mercy of the waves, tossed here and there and getting nowhere, except perhaps the rocks. And Paul gives the example of two magicians at the court of Pharaoh in the days of Moses, who opposed Moses when he spoke the word of God to Pharaoh. Now, you won't find their names in the book of Exodus, but the magicians were certainly there, but they weren't named. The names come from Jewish tradition. But the point being made is that just as their advice to Pharaoh turned out to be wrong, so too the teachings of the false prophets of Paul and Timothy's time will be shown to be so obviously wrong as to be laughable. For if we don't follow the maker's instructions, we do make a mess of life. And it is obvious for everybody to see. This particular group of people who have infiltrated the church, they are the devil's fifth column they're his secret agents, actively inside the church, trying to undermine it. Archbishop Cranmer and others at the time of the Reformation who composed the Book of Common Prayer and what we call the 39 Articles of Religion, 
put this in Article 26. In the visible church, evil is ever mingled with the good, and sometimes the evil have chief authority in the ministration of the word and sacraments. So in the 16th century, Archbishop Cranmer recognized that archbishops and bishops, deans and canons, rectors and curates can, in fact, be phony Christians. It's alarming, but it is reality. So Timothy is neither to keep his head down and hope that the prevailing current which is pressurizing the church will pass, and nor is he to kind of merge in with the prevailing current and be relieved of the pressure by simply going along with it. He's to stand out boldly against that prevailing flow of opinion. Now in verses 10 to 15, in the next paragraph, twice Paul addresses Timothy with the same two words. Verse 14, it's translated, but you, and in verse 10 it is translated, now you, but the word is the same. It's quite, again, quite emphatic. You know, he's punctuating this letter with kind of words which say, yep, it's for you, Timothy, that I'm writing this. So Timothy, in contrast to the contemporary decline in morals, to the empty show of religion and to the spread of false teaching, Timothy is called to be different and, if necessary, stand on his own. Paul reminds Timothy what he's been doing. He's, he's known or he has observed him. Then he urges him to continue down that same path Verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. So in 10 to 13, he describes Timothy's past as um, one of loyalty to the Apostle Paul's teaching and lifestyle. And in verses 50, uh, 14 and the beginning of 15, he urges him to remain loyal in the future. What he has followed faithfully, in other words, he's to continue in. Persecution, whether mild or severe, is inevitable. Verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. It's possible to avoid the persecution by either withdrawing from the world or assimilating to the ways of the world, but neither are the truly Christian position. It's not a Christian option. The Christian option is to be in the world and in Christ simultaneously, which will always be intention in this life. And that means persecution becomes inevitable, whether it is severe or mild, since the world finds it so hard to accept that it is in the wrong and that God is in the right. So much so, it will give the messengers who convey God's message a hard time. Verse 13, deceiving and being deceived is worth a moment's reflection because some false teachers start off with the best of motives. They want to remove as many unnecessary barriers to coming 
into contact with Christ and so receive the possibility of salvation. But in so doing, they are in danger of going too far and effectively water down the apostolic faith to distort it and degrade it, so much so that it is no longer the authentic version. And then over time, not only have they deceived others, they come to deceive themselves. So Timothy is to continue in what he has learnt from the Apostle Paul, verse 14, and has also learnt the Old Testament through his mother and grandmother, verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now these two grounds for continuing on in the faith are for us today the Gospel of the New Testament and the Gospel of the Old Testament, which are vouched for us by the prophets of God in the Old and the apostles of Christ in the New. And finally, we look at the origin and the purpose of Scripture in these classic verses, which we probably almost know by heart. The second half is verse 15. The Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good works. So two fundamental truths about Scripture are being asserted here. Its origin, where it comes from, and its purpose. What is it for? By all Scripture, Paul means what Timothy had learnt from him as an apostle, and quite likely other apostles too. And the Holy Scriptures the Old Testament he'd learnt from his mother and grandmother. The writings of the apostles make up the New Testament and the writings of the prophets make up the Old Testament. And it's clear back in verse 8 that Paul, quite astonishingly, equates his teaching with that of Moses. He puts them on a par and we read, all scripture has been God-breathed, by which Paul means that scripture originated from God's mind and that he then breathed it out, as it were. He expresses it. And that revelation of his mind in various ways has been reliably recorded by the prophets and apostles. It's been put on record for our benefit. Their modes of inspiration varied. But it was still God managed to convey from his mind to their mind, and so we can access it with our minds. And secondly, the purpose of Holy Scripture. The purpose is that it's to be useful or profitable. This is because God is its ultimate author. And Paul uses two expressions in verse 15. The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation. The scriptures are not exhaustive. They do not tell us about everything. 
They don't, for example, tell us about things which we can work out for ourselves using our God-given rationality. But it does tell us what our rational minds could never work out unaided, which is how it is that God has been able to put himself in a position with full integrity where on the one hand he is able to forgive us the kind of rebellious attitude towards him and the consequential kind of bad behaviour towards other people which has caused suffering. How can he do that and at the same time be the just upholder of his perfect law and standards? We would not be able to work that out unless it had been revealed to us, which it has been because Jesus Christ has come and that salvation is possible through faith in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament foretold it and in a way foreshadows it. He gives us hints of how it will kind of work out. And while the New Testament tells us what he's said and done, which draws us to trust him so that we might be saved from sin and death and exclusion to forgiveness, life, and eternal inclusion. And Paul ends this chapter by showing us that Scripture's usefulness relates to both belief and behaviour. The false teachers separated them. We must keep them together. We must get clearly in our minds God's take on life. In other words, we must get our theology right, our knowledge of God. The scriptures are useful in that regard, positively by teaching the truth and negatively by rebuking any kind of erroneous thinking. And so far as our behaviour is concerned, scripture corrects it. Scripture is the benchmark against which we are assessed and to which we aspire to. And scripture is useful for training, again, both a positive and then, uh, uh, first a negative and then a positive purpose. And why? What's the outcome? So that the man of God may be, um, which may mean either simply all Christians or may here be referring to those like Timothy with positions of responsibility in the church under scripture to teach and refute, to reform and discipline. It's only by a diligent study of the scriptures that the man of God may become thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as we close and look back over this chapter as a whole, we can see the relevance of its message to our very pluralistic and very permissive society. Measured against the biblical benchmark, much of what is thought of as acceptable human behaviour is tragically adrift and resulting in so much suffering. Worse, some in the church who should know better go with the flow and the flood tide of sin and error that is all part of it. Others go into hiding as the only hope of survival, the only alternative to surrender. But we've seen that neither of these are the Christian way. He says, but as for you, Timothy, 
Stand firm. Never mind the pressure to conform is so strong. Never mind if you are young and inexperienced. Never mind if you find yourself on your own. You followed the teaching, or in Paul's case he says, you followed my teaching so far. Now continue in what you've come to believe. You've had a firm biblical grounding in the faith. You have the God-breathed scriptures. Even in these difficult times, when evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, the scriptures will keep you on track, thoroughly equipping you for your life and work. The word of God, in other words, Timothy, will make you the man of God. Adhere to it, and you will weather the storm and lead you on to Christian maturity. And we could emulate that. Let us pray. In the words of the Collect for the second Sunday in Advent, Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.